Our series this semester is Where is Jesus in the Old Testament? And sometimes I, I really like to go to some really strange passages because there's a lot of strange passages in the Old Testament. And generally, the strange passages are there for a reason. It's not like they were the only stories they had and they said, well, it's a weird story, but it's all we got, so we're stuck with it. No, Bible history, like all history, is selective. The people writing the Bible chose certain things for particular purposes. And uh, this is a story that's in there, and I think when we understand it in the context not only of the rest of the five books of Moses, because I think there's a passage in Deuteronomy that helps shed some light on this story, but also in light of Jesus himself, because Jesus refers to this very passage in Numbers 21. It's actually right before the most famous verse that probably, whether you're a Christian or not, you've probably heard. Do you know John 3.16? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Right, you know this. John 3.14 and 15. The two verses before that no one knows are a reference to this weird story about people murmuring against God and he sends poisonous snakes to kill them. That's what, that's what this story is, uh, is about. You ready for this? It's in Numbers chapter 21 and we'll pick up the reading in, chap- in uh, verse 4. Numbers 21 verse 4, this is God's word. They, that means the Israelites, and this is after the Exodus, after the Passover, after they've gotten out of Egypt, and now they're wandering around in the desert. That's where this comes from. They, that means the Israelites, traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread. There is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake. And put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to understand why is this story here? What does it teach us about who you are, about who we are, about what we need? We pray you'd help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this is a passage that provokes a lot of questions, isn't it? It's a strange story. It's a story that it's not like I would make up a story like this. If I was going to make up a Bible, I'm not sure this is the story that I would put in there. It's a weird story. It raises lots of questions. Lots of questions. Um, the first one we're going to consider, I think is an obvious one, is why snakes? Why does God send snakes? And the answer given in the passage is because Israelites spoke against God and against Moses. They murmured against God 
is how it says in some of the translations. They murmur against God. Now, I don't know about y'all, but murmuring, does that really sound like a big deal? I wonder how many times this week you've murmured against God or against somebody else. I have a heart murmur, but I don't think that's what it's talking about. So I murmur all the time. But now I think about my kids, and I think it's probably one of the things that drives me most crazy sometimes is when you tell them to do something, and they might, might do it, but they're sure going to let you know that they're doing it because they want to, not because you made them do it. And so they sort of, even as they move to do what you tell them to do, they sort of, you know, go, you know, there's just this murmuring, you know, basically saying, I will not submit to you, but I am going to do what you said. But I'm not submitting. I'm really not, right? Murmuring, like, it seems like just something that's part of ordinary life. And in some ways, it seems justifiable. I mean, they're having a hard time. They're out in the desert. They're wandering around. And they don't have any water. They've got miserable food. And, you know, it's a difficult situation. Murmuring. Is murmuring really that big a deal? But here's what we need to understand. I I think that language in verse 5 is revealing. When it says they spoke against God and against Moses. And later in verse 7 and the people come to Moses and say, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. So they come to see that speaking against God and against Moses is a bad thing and they shouldn't have done it. What's going on with murmuring? What is murmuring? Here's what murmuring is. Murmuring is slander against the character of God. Murmuring is slandering God's character, contending that he doesn't care and he has no power to do anything anyway. Murmuring is saying, God, I don't like how you're ruling your world, particularly the part of it that impacts me right now. And if I was in charge, I would do it differently and it would be better. It's not just saying, I would prefer another outcome right now, God. It's saying, I know better and I would do better, either because you don't care or you don't have power. It is an assault upon God at a point which he is concerned very much about. His, His kindness and his mercy and his power. And it is speaking against all of those things. He's not providing, they say. The murmuring is their way of saying, you're not providing for us. And also tied in with that is, we deserve better than this. We deserve better than this. Now, the irony, of course, in speaking against God in that way, in this very passage, is that he's providing in miraculous ways. The, the, the miserable food that they're talking about. Do you, know, do you know what this miserable food is? It's manna. It's bread that falls from heaven. Okay, maybe they're sick of it. But it's manna. It's miraculous bread that's fallen from heaven. In verses 1 through 3, God delivers them in a miraculous way militarily. So he's protecting them. Like it's all around this passage, his care for them. 
And it's almost like the, the way Moses has structured it, it's like he cared for them, he gave them food, up, and then boom. What, the, the, they're impatient and they're speaking against God and against Moses. And even the structure of the passage shows you how quickly it can turn from, thank you very much, God, glad we got what we needed, and then in the very next moment, you're not coming through for us. Do you recognize this heart attitude at all? Do you find your heart this fickle? One moment you're thankful to God for something, the very next minute you can live in such a way or act or believe or feel like he never does anything for me ever. It's always amazing to me how my kids can catastrophize everything and take sort of everything like, you never play with me or you never do this or you never do that. And like, are you kidding? Like, we played an hour ago, right? But it's not just little kids, it's all of us. God, you never provide for me. But I think in reality, you know, what's going on is God is providing, but he's not providing according to their demands. They don't want God to determine the provision. They want to be able to place their order and have God fill it. They, they don't care what he's given them. He's not giving them what they want. And so he might as well not be giving them anything at all. Do you recognize that attitude in yourself? Well, I see it in myself. The way I like to think of it is they're treating God not like he's the great healer, the great physician. They're treating him like he's the great pharmacist in the sky. Anybody here like to diagnose themselves, don't like to go to the doctor? You just kind of know what's wrong, and you just wish that you could write prescriptions? Because you know what you need. Why go through submitting to somebody, even with all of their training and all of their ability to run tests and whatnot? I know what I need. I just need somebody to fill my prescription. That's how we treat God so much of the time. We treat him not like the divine healer who needs to make a diagnosis, we treat him as the divine pharmacist who simply exists to fill the prescriptions that we've written. We want to write the prescription and have God fill it. So we're, we're very much like the Israelites here, aren't we? And, and then, you know, God could have done lots of different things to their murmuring. Why does he send snakes? Is there anything particularly fitting about sending snakes against murmuring people? Well, think about it. Now, this is Numbers. It's one of the five books of Moses. What has just happened right before this? Where were they? In Egypt. Do you know anything about the gods of Egypt? Do you know that the cobra, the snake, the venomous snake, is a god in Egypt? It's a symbol of Egyptian power. So perhaps God is saying to them, you really want to be back under the serpent's power? Really? You think you had it better? Or maybe there's another snake story that God is wanting to remind them of. You remember another important snake story in the Bible? 
Genesis chapter 3. What's going on in Genesis chapter 3? The snake comes to Adam and Eve and tempts them. But have you thought much about the nature of the temptation? God has given them all kinds of things. A wonderful garden to live in. All kinds of trees for food. Except one that they're not to eat from. And what does Satan come and do in the, in the person of this serpent? He comes and he says, God is holding out on you the really good stuff. God does not care. God does not good. God is threatened by you. He's threatened by how you might be a better God than he is if your eyes were opened. Adam and Eve doubt God's goodness before they eat. And that is what the serpent has been doing ever since. Is trying to convince us that no matter what God does, he's holding out on you because he doesn't care for you or he has no power to take care of you. Murmuring is always an expression of thinking that God doesn't care or can't take care of you. And it's, it's been a story that's been going on since the dawn of creation. I think God wants to connect the heart attitude now with the heart attitude that we're Adam and Eve Because it's the same story. God is providing all kinds of good things, and all they care about is what they don't have. Oh, he's given us food, but it's miserable food. There's probably better food. Why is he holding out on us? See, the real sin is that rather than worshiping God, Israel here is wanting to use God as a means to an end. See, there's a lot of people that really want to have God in their life. They really think that having a religious side to their life or even having the God of the Bible in their life would be a great thing. But I think a lot of times they're not, they're not really wanting God for God. They're wanting God for what they think God can bring them. And murmuring is often an indication that you don't want God You want something else, and you want God to get it for you. And if he doesn't, then you feel like he's not not performing the way he should. And here's the thing. God will not let his people or anybody else use him as a means to an end because he has a passion for his glory and because he has a passion for us. He made us to be dependent upon him, not to order him around. And it doesn't, it doesn't do us any good if he lets us treat him as a means to an end. Why? Because he made us for himself. As St. Augustine said, that he made us for himself and our hearts are restless until we find rest in him. And it would not be loving of God at all 
to let us just go on using him as a means to an end, it wouldn't be loving because it's not what we're made for. It's not good for us. So we may think murmuring is no big deal. But God sees murmuring as evidence that we're trying to use him as a means to an end rather than getting him. Murmuring is an indication that we're trying to use him as a means to an end and it's not working. Now, I know about this because this is my life for years and years in particular. You know, when I, when I first became a Christian was in ninth grade and I would tell you that I wasn't really a bad kid as much as I was a just miserably lonely kid. Oh, certainly was a sinner. But the main thing I was conscious of was how desperately lonely and miserable I was. And when I first got around evangelical Christians, like real Christians, I was, I was really attracted just to the way they were friendly to me. And honestly, like, I think I decided that I would sort of get involved in this whole Christian thing because I thought maybe this would be um, a way to get some friends. But I will tell you what's fascinating as I look back over my life for years and years and years, I would say it, it was almost uncanny how God seemed to go out of his way to thwart my having the kinds of friends that I thought Christians should just get because they were Christians. I mean, I'd hear all this talk about Christian community and I'd see other Christians that seemed to all be friendly and have friends and I never had friends. And so then I would sort of redouble my efforts to have friends. And you know what that does? That like makes everybody know how desperate you are and they feel like you're going to smother them. And so it just is sort of this catch-22 and it just sort of doesn't seem to work. But it, and it, it really was years and years later. It was actually after I was out of seminary. So I, you know, went through basically using God as a means to an end, getting angrier and angrier and angrier. In seminary, I had a professor tell me when I took the Myers-Briggs test that I had a lot of suppressed anger and rage. And I remember thinking, oh, I don't, funny, I don't feel angry. Um, And he said, well, you might want to explore that because these tests usually are pretty good at picking up on that kind of stuff. I was like, okay, all right, fine, thanks for that. So uh, it really was like a year later that I was in a, a service and the preacher was preaching about anger. And I remember at the beginning of it thinking, I'm not angry. I remember thinking, oh, yeah, well, there was that guy that told me I was angry. Oh, man, I'm really angry. I'm really angry at God because he's not come through. It doesn't even seem to make sense to me why he seems to have went out of his way to keep me lonely. Why? And then I saw almost at the same time two things. God just sort of opened my eyes. The only way I know how to describe it. As this guy was preaching, I realized, oh my gosh, I've been angry ever since I've been a Christian. And I know why. Because God has not come through for me. But at the same time I realized that, I realized, oh my gosh, I've been trying to use God as a means to an end for years. I don't want God. I want friends. And then I realized God was still pursuing me in spite of me trying to use him as a means to an end all this time, in spite of me being angry at him, holding my heart away from him. I'm not going to give him my heart if he won't give me friends. I'm not going to give him anything he wants if he won't give me friends. And I realized 
He was still pursuing me in his grace. He had every right to say, okay, you ingrate, washing my hands of you. I sent my son Jesus to die on a cross, and you still feel like I need to prove my love to you by obeying your demands? All right, well, fine. Done with you. But God didn't say that. God said, Kevin, I still want your heart. In spite of you trying to use me as a means to an end, I still want you to be my son. What is it that you think you need more than God himself? Because I know there's something. What is it that if God took it away from you, you would be seriously tempted to say, I don't want God. If I can't have this, I don't want God. What is it that if it was offered to you, you would trade God? And don't think that Christians don't struggle with that kind of stuff. Those are important questions. And what do you think God is going to do about the fact that there are things that you would trade for his love? Huh? What do you think he's going to do about that? And here's an amazing thought. Maybe God is already doing something about it. See, that's what I had to realize as I was at that service. It wasn't that God had just been sort of sitting on the sidelines sort of wringing his hands, wondering, what am I going to do? He was pursuing me. And one of the ways he was pursuing me was by frustrating my attempts to use him as a means to an end. In other words, the thing that was driving me crazy, the thing that was making me so angry, was actually God's love. Saying, because I love you, I will not let you use me as a means to an end. My murmuring was actually wrestling with God, though I didn't even understand it. So, maybe God has already made a diagnosis, a very different one than you've made. In other words, you may be like me. The thing I need most in the world are friends. Oh, it's great to have God, and maybe God will lead me to friends, but what I really need are friends. God had said, Kevin, what you really need is me. Seek first the kingdom. Maybe God has made that kind of diagnosis about you. And maybe what you take as evidence of him not coming through for you is actually him standing in the way of you trying to get something and using him as a means to an end. Do you understand what I'm saying? Is that a possibility? It's worth considering because God's ways of healing are often very strange and perplexing. And that's what we see in this passage next. This is a strange way of healing. There is no doubt about it. Look at this strange way of healing. I mean, how long do you think it takes to make a bronze serpent? It doesn't happen right away. I mean, the people are dying. The people are dying from snake bite. And God says, make a bronze serpent? That's not a quick fix. It's not a quick fix, right? 
And doesn't it seem cruel to make people look at the very thing that's killing them? I mean, why doesn't he, you know, hold up, have them hold up sort of, you know, I don't know, like a bottle of medicine? No. Look at the thing that's killing you. And, and think about this. And look up. Where are the snakes? They're down at your feet. Is anybody here really excited about looking up when there's poisonous snakes all over the place? Like everything about this way of healing is weird. It doesn't seem like a very well thought through plan on God's part for how to deal with the snakes. And it's not really what the people asked for anyway, is it? They said, Moses, pray to God to take the snakes away. God doesn't take the snakes away. As a matter of fact, verse 9 makes it very clear that the snakes remain even after the bronze serpent is there. Because it says, from then on, whenever somebody got bit by a snake, the biting was still going on. Even after the serpent was built and the serpent was hung up on a pole, still people are being bitten. God gives them a provision in the midst, in the midst of this brokenness. He doesn't take it away, and he doesn't take them out of it. I think the only thing that you can conclude from this strange way of healing, the only thing that makes the least bit of sense is that God is after more than just healing them of snakebite. If God just wanted to deal with the snakes, surely he could have thought of something better. He must be after something bigger. And in fact, Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 2 tells us what this bigger thing is. Deuteronomy 8 is a very important passage for understanding all of the Pentateuch and particularly the wandering in the desert. Why did Israel wander in the desert for 40 years? After that's all done, Deuteronomy is a sermon based upon that. And here's what God says through Moses. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years. To hum- Listen to all the purpose clauses here. To, 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 to do this, to do that, so that this can happen, right? He led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, That means it was a new, brand new thing. To teach you, there's another purpose clause, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. God made them hungry so that he could feed them so that they would know that man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from God. What was the deal in the Garden of Eden? They were supposed to not eat of that one tree. Why? God didn't explain why. God said, my word, my prohibition is sufficient. Trust me. It became the focal point of obedience. Would they trust his word or would they trust what seems good to them? 
And at the heart of every temptation is that same issue. The philosophers call it epistemology. How do you know what you know? What is true? What you think or what God's word says? And it's always at the heart of the struggle with God. And Deuteronomy 8 says that the whole wandering in the desert was to teach them that they need to depend on the word of God. They needed it before sin entered the world. They certainly need it now. Now, Jesus picks up on this. You remember? Jesus is also tempted in a desert. Not for 40 years, but for 40 days. And it's interesting that in, in, uh, in the Gospels, it says that the Spirit drove him into the desert to be tempted. So it wasn't sort of like a diversion from what God wanted Jesus to do. The Spirit drove him into the desert. And every time he was tempted, he quotes from Deuteronomy. Including this passage. At every point at which Israel fails to trust God in the desert, Jesus does trust and does obey. And yet he ends up being killed anyway. Whoa, that's not how it's supposed to work. But that's what happens. Because having people look at a bronze snake surely is a bizarre way of bringing healing. But it can't even begin to compare with the cross. You want to talk about a bizarre way for God to bring healing? To send the innocent Son of God to take on human flesh, to do everything just right, perfectly, to trust God even in the midst of extreme temptation in a desert. Satan comes to him and tempts him three times. He's sorely tempted and he prevails. And then he's put to death. Now there's a lot of stuff that happens in between and it's important stuff. But the heart of the thing is he prevails. He overcomes temptation and then he's put to death anyway. And Christianity says that is the hinge upon which All of reality turns. That is God's plan for healing what is wrong with us at the most core of our being. Here's what what Jesus says in John chapter 3. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, which is his way he describes himself, the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Just as Moses lifted up the sake in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And in John's Gospel, every time that phrase, the Son of Man must be lifted up, is used, it's a reference to the cross. That as they laid that cross in the ground, and they nailed him or they tied him, we don't know, but it, it was horrible and gory, whatever it was, they pulled that cross up and the Son of Man was lifted up. And through that, Jesus says, he will draw all men to himself. Healing, Christianity says, comes through looking at a cross. And think about it. 
it's no less weird than this serpent in the wilderness. Just like the serpent in the wilderness, we have to look at our shame pictured before us. There's nobody that can look at Jesus on a cross and pat themselves on the back because the cross says, this is what you deserved, death and hell. Don't flatter yourself. There is no end run around your sin if you would find healing at the cross. To find healing at the cross means you have to look at your sin in the person of Jesus who hangs there bloody and disfigured because that's what we deserved. You can't just come to God and say, I'd really like a relationship with you. He says the only way you can come and have a relationship with me is if you face, if you face what you've done to my son with your sin. Because there was no other way for you to be reconciled except that I would punish my son in your place. And I will not have a relationship with anybody that dishonors my son and refuses to come through him. Because if you refuse to come through Jesus, what you're saying is that Jesus didn't die, didn't need to die at all. And that's a really sobering thing to say to God. Healing comes through looking at the cross. Healing comes through looking at the cross and not hedging your bets. See, if you look up at a serpent on a pole, you're not looking at your feet. Unlike some animals, you can't do that with your eyes. God has not made you in such a way that you can look up at a pole and also look down at your feet. So the look of faith is a whole-souled reliance upon the object of faith. It's not, well, you know, I've got Jesus in my corner, and then I'm going to you know, make sure I hedge my bets, and I'm going to you know, be looking around too. No, this is such a perfect picture of what faith in Jesus means because you can't hedge your bets. You're either looking at him or you're taking care of yourself. You're either looking at God's provision or you're covering your bets. Where are you looking for help? See, God's goal is not just to provide for us so that we can run off and live as we like. His goal is to make us live upon him. If God wanted Israelite to have a smooth, comfortable existence, he could have removed the snakes, but he doesn't. Why? Because his goal is deeper. I think he wants to turn the why questions into who questions. See, at the heart of this passage, Israel is asking, why are you doing this? Why are you brought us into the desert? Why are you make us wander around? And God says, I want you to focus in a different place. I want you to wrestle with who has saved you and who you're dealing with. See, murmuring Murmuring usually comes out, and it seems like what we're saying is, why, 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 why? But honestly, guys, at the heart of murmuring is who, 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 who. Who are you? Who are you? Often we think we're asking, what is God doing? Or why is God doing what he's doing? But really, 
what God wants to do is to provoke us into coming to know him in a deeper way through what he's doing. God often, God almost never, as I can tell in the Bible, responds to a why question with an answer. The answer he always responds with is who. Job had these kind of questions. Why have you done this? And God said, let me ask you a question. Where were you when I created the earth? Where were you when I hollowed out the seas? Where were you when I, you know, and he goes on and on and on, chapter, a couple chapters, and Job says, okay, I'm sorry, I repent. I shut up now. And God says, sit down, I'm not done. And goes on for another chapter after chapter after chapter. Job never gets his why question answered except with a, I am the Lord your God, and here's who I am. Let me say that again. Murmuring is usually expressed in questioning why God is doing what he's doing without really caring to know him more deeply through what he's doing. But as Deuteronomy shows us, why, the why, the why answer that we get is so that you would come to know and trust God more intimately. And that's what he's doing over and over again. But you know, it's possible even to look at God's provision and miss God. Do you know this? Sometimes, like, God gives you sweet tastes of his mercy, whether it be through friends or, you know, maybe a passage or a book or a song or lots of different things. And what's fascinating is how often we want to just rest in those things and not kind of go through those things to knowing God himself more deeply. And this gets us to something that's really interesting about this story, because this isn't the last place that this little snake, uh, bronze serpent, comes up. Do you know this? There's actually an interesting passage. I, I put it on your outline. It's over in 2 Kings chapter 18, four little verses, where we find a continuation of this story. Um, it says this, in the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. And notice this, verse 4. He removed the high places, that's the place where people were worshiping false gods. He smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles. Asherah was a god, the female counterpart to Baal, and she was worshipped through these poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. They really liked this provision that God had given them, this bronze serpent, so much that they named it and they were burning incense to it. And it shows us that even God's good gifts can become disconnected from God. They had turned the Lord's provision into an idol. They even gave it a name and worshipped it. Rather than it leading them to trust God more, which is what God's provision should do, 
They were trying to control it to get what they wanted. That's the whole thing with burning incense to it. Why do you burn incense to something? Because you want the pleasing aroma to get the God on your side so that you can get what you want. Do you see? The thing that caused the serpents to be sent among them in the first place. Trying to control God. Using him as a means to an end. So he sends serpents. So then he gives them a provision a way of healing to look to him and they turn that into another way of trying to control him. The serpent was not enough. Jesus had to come. But God is a good God and so he takes away the provision that's become an idol. He has it smashed. And here's what's fascinating. I don't know about you, but I often find that the murmuring that is most difficult for me to get past is when God takes away something that I'm convinced is good and I'm convinced that I absolutely need. And is it possible that God in his goodness is taking away things that I try to put in his place? See, I know we talk sometimes about idolatry and how we try to trust other things rather than God himself. And I don't want you to think that you're alone in the fight against your idols. Do you know that God is fighting against your idols? And sometimes he's going to strip them out of your life. And sometimes it's going to hurt like hell. And you're going to wonder why, why, why? And maybe what you need to be asking is, who are you, God, that you would love me so much that you would take away things, even good things? Who are you that you would still pursue me and love me even when there are things in my life and in my heart that I would give you up if I could have them? And yet you still stand in my way because you love me. Don't you want to know a God like that? Have you ever had a friend like that? Who will risk you thinking that they're your enemy because they love you so much? You ever had a friend like that? Who came to you and gave you a life-giving rebuke and was willing to take your anger And your why, why, why questions? One day maybe you'll have kids and you'll have this experience of having to take your little child to the doctor's office and hold them down when they put that needle in their leg. And there are some visits where it's not just one needle. It's like two or three. See, it's one thing to hold the kid down when they don't know what's coming. It's another thing to hold them down after the one needle and they see another needle coming and they look at you with those eyes, Daddy, why? And do you believe that God is willing to love you enough to take, Daddy, why? He can handle it. You don't have anybody else that loves you like that. It's not that the why questions are inappropriate, but be careful that they don't become little eddies 
just kind of swirling around that keep you from going down the stream to the heart of God. Ultimately, the only way to be able to trust a God like that is to continue to cast your eyes upon Jesus hanging on a cross because that is the answer. And again, it's not the kind of answer that explains all the hard things you've suffered, but it is the who. It is the who answer. Daddy, why? And the answer he gives is, look at my son hanging on a cross. It doesn't answer every question, but it puts them in perspective like nothing else can. I don't know what God's doing in my life most of the time. I don't know what he's doing in your life, at least not the details, but I know this, that he is working to make me more dependent on him, not just for his glory, but because it's what I was made for, and it's where I will finally find rest. And he sure puts up with a lot of disappointment and a lot of screaming and a lot of rage and a lot of hate from me. But he says it's worth it. I mean, after all, Jesus already suffered the scorn and the hate. And you remember what he said? Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. Isn't that amazing to know? That when you cast all your hate and scorn upon Jesus, that his response is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what my love feels like. Let's pray.